1: Under the Jews, a stumbling block, under the Greeks, foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God.
0: Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin.
2: Since the 18th century, New Testament documents have been divided into families. And this sounds somewhat familiar to you already. We've talked about lineage, uh, but this is going to be a little more specific. Uh, This is an extremely important note regarding the lineage of all Bibles today. So the family belongs to, well, you know, if you can determine, so if you have an English Bible and you can determine what its family is, then you know its lineage and you know whether you can trust it or not. Uh, as to date, the King James Bible is the only Bible that comes from the proper lineage. Now, the New King James says that it comes from the same the same documents as the King James. But the New King James is riddled with horrible problems, and so I don't know how it came from the same book, uh, unless I guess if you have a devil translating, then it's just gonna it's gonna turn out wrong. So. That that's how that goes. Um, they all originate from one of these families. So the first one is the Western family, family. and you have some. Some will teach this course that I'm teaching, um, and instead of calling it the Alexandrian text, they might call it the Western text. Uh, but it. But if you if you look at the history of the, the Western, the Alexandrian, and the Caesarean, which we'll look at in a moment. They all come from the same place. They all come from the same mentality. And so the, the, what we have found is, or what, what has been suggested to be the best way to identify them all in one family and lineage is the Alexandrian text. So the Western family, and th- this collection of writings was produced by the Western church fathers, most notably, and again, these names are going to be familiar, Irenaeus. So there's Irenaeus, Tertullian, and Cyprian. We just talked about these people. Um, Notable manuscripts from the Western family are D and D2. Uh, notable supporting documents uh, the Latin Vulgate, um, the Diatessaron, who produced that? Very good. Tatian, uh, the Curtonian, we just talked about this in the versions. And the Sinaitic Syriac. All right, next we have the Alexandrian family. And Brother Jim assures me Alexandria is not upset with me. This is the line of manuscripts used by Origen. We've talked about him quite a bit already. Also do, contains documents written by other church fathers from Alexandria. And I don't have a list of those men, but the materials I studied, uh, a couple of the books mentioned this idea that there were many church fathers from Alexandria who, who quoted from the Alexandrian family. Now, notable manuscripts... Pairi, 46, 47, 66, 75, B. Remember that? And who can guess what the next one might be? Aleph. Now, the two men who loved B, this manuscript, Westcott and Hort. That was their baby. They preferred anything Alexandrian, but they really elevated this text above all other documents. They called it the neutral text. Imagine that. So they're saying that because they believed this to be the neutral text, it was the reference point for all other texts. So all other texts for them got compared to B, and if it didn't match B, then they would say that B was correct and the others were wrong. All right, next, who can guess what the next one is? The Byzantine family. Also known as what? Traditional. And for, for our ultimate purposes in identifying families, we would call this Antiochian. That's important to remember. I haven't emphasized it as much um, as some might but that is very important uh, it is the antiochian line the antiochian family and that incorporates the you know the byzantine the traditional the majority the textus receptus all that falls into, into this this family the overwhelming majority who knows what that means what does overwhelming majority mean 99.9% a huge number <laughs> All right, so if, we're gonna, if we have a scale here, all right, and you have the Byzantine over here and you have the Alexandrian and the Western over here, if, if you're going to give weight to one or the other, the Byzantine is going to be like this. All the weight is over here. The, the majority of all manuscripts that exist, the overwhelming majority of Greek New Testament texts belong to this family. So that means that the majority of all evidence that exists belongs to this family. So why would you go somewhere else? If you're up to something, you would go somewhere else. Now, notable manuscripts. A. W. Peshitta Syriac. Gross's new favorite word. And the Gothic version. Notable supporting documents are the writings of Chrysostom and, and the fathers from Antioch and Asia Minor. So there I mean, the list could be, could be nice and long. Uh, now let's talk a little bit more about the Western family. So it's the Gothic version and Chrysostom. All right. So the Western family. This collection of writings was produced by the Western Church Fathers, most notably Irenaeus, Tertullian, Cyprian. Notable manuscripts are D and D2, supporting documents where he talked about all that. The Western text is believed to have originated in the East, which is interesting, and then soon after transported to Rome. And that's where the trouble comes in. Um, From there, it was adopted by the Roman Church. Rome's influence spread, and the Western text spread with them. In many verses of the Bible, the Western text would add to or subtract from the Word of God. Uh, These came to be known, this is what they are actually called. Western additions and Western omissions. Now, if you knew there were additions and omissions in this text, why would you use it? Like in the world of textual criticism, this is what they call it. And then they're still trying to figure out, where is the Word of God? Where's the original reading? We don't know. All right, so look at Matthew 3:15. Let's look at some of these. Let's see their additions and omissions. Matthew three. And verse 15. And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. The Western text adds, and a great light shone around. Now, why? (laughs) Who knows? But it was obviously added. Luke chapter 3 and verse 22. And the verse says in the Bible, And the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. The Western text adds, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. It doesn't say that. And now, if you don't understand the doctrine surrounding the term begotten, you don't understand how serious of an error this is. The word begotten is very important. The word begotten in the Bible, especially in reference, in reference to anyone, but, but notably in reference to Jesus Christ, it, it's a term of exaltation. This day have I begotten thee, I'm elevating you. You know. So, so Isaac was Abraham's only begotten son, right? Was he his only son? No. He was the begotten son, which means that the, the, that the promises went from Abraham, skipped Ishmael, and went to Isaac. Because Abraham had, had many sons. And, and so Isaac was the one chosen to carry on the, the, the promises that were given to Abraham. So, so he was the only begotten. He's the only one that got those promises. Well, God the Father has made numerous promises to Jesus Christ. And and, uh, was it Psalm 2? He says, this day have I begotten thee. He's talking about exalting him to his throne in Zion. In In Hebrews 1, this day have I begotten thee. It says that that he's his only begotten son. These are points of of exaltation. I I am elevating you to something here. Um, When it talks about him being the high priest, God gave him that position in Hebrews 5 that he he has begotten in that situation. So he's given this place of exaltation. So you just randomly add it at his baptism? You don't understand the term. You you didn't take the time to study it out and find out what it even meant. And you just, just, I guess they thought it would be a good thing to add there. Look at Acts 15. Acts 15 and verse 20. But that we write unto them, that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. The Western text adds, and whatsoever they do not wish to be done to themselves, not to do to others. (laughs) (laughs) Now, where'd that come from? There'd be no textual support for something like that. They just, religious people decide... You know, you know, God probably forgot to add this here. And it'd be a good idea if that was there. Let's add it. And so they add it. And now it's there. The Western text may have started out as a reliable text, but in the hands of Rome, it soon became untrustworthy. When you have additions and omissions in your text, it's no longer trustworthy. It's no longer usable. Omissions. So those were additions. Let's look at a few omissions. Look at Luke 22. And I often have a harder time with what people leave out than I do with the silly things they add. Neither is okay, but uh, Luke 22, verses 19 and 20. And he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise, also the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Now, there is nothing in that passage I would dare toy with. The Son of God is is illustrating to these people what he's about to do to his body to pay for the sins of the world. And you think you can edit that? (laughs) So this is what they do. They omit, given for you and shed for you were omitted from the passage. Now, doesn't that seem kind of significant to, to what the Lord's saying there? My body given for you, my blood shed for you. Let's just delete that. And if, if Jesus gets mad, we'll ask Mary to talk to him. Look at Luke 24. These missing portions of this scripture carried over into the Revised Standard Version. So it's in in the New Bibles. Luke 24, verse 3. And they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. Now who can guess if this is going to go well or not? So they omitted of the Lord Jesus So they went in a tomb and didn't find a body. Well, whose body? I mean, it's somewhat significant that it's the body of the Lord Jesus Christ that is no longer in the tomb. (laughs) He's the one that said he was going to rise from the dead, and then he did it. I mean, that's that's kind of important. Look at um, verse 6. He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee. He is not here, but is risen, is omitted. They deleted it. Why would you have this text? Why would you have anything to do with it? And you know they are the Western additions and omissions. You know somebody added this stuff and deleted it. Look at verse 12. Then arose Peter and ran unto the sepulcher, and stooping down, he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves, and departed wondering in himself at that which was come to pass. The entire verse is omitted. doesn't exist. Look at verse 36. They did a number on this chapter. And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. Peace be unto you is omitted. It's deleted. Look at verse 40. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. Now, does that seem important? The whole verse is deleted. Now, somebody sat down and decided, don't think that belongs there. And they deleted it. They omitted it. They removed it. Why would you have anything to do with these people? Look at verse um, 51 seems kind of important and it came to pass while he while he blessed them he was parted from them and carried up into heaven and was carried up into heaven is deleted now look at verse 52 and this this really defines the the whole problem that this this deletion describes exactly what the problem is look at verse 52 and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Worshipped him is deleted. Now let's read that verse again, the way that they have it. And returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Worshipped him, it's gone. They don't worship him, they don't care. This book is subject to them Jesus is subject to them. They are not subject to him. And that verse says it all. This means the atoning work of Christ has been removed from the book of Luke in any Bibles that descend from the Western text. It's gone. The ascension of Christ is also removed from Luke and from Mark in this text. Leaving us with a Christ who never went to sit at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Now, what's the, what's the major problem if you remove the ascension of Christ from Mark and from Luke? So, the problem is Matthew and John have no ascension. It's not there, they don't talk about it. It's told, we're told that he ascended into heaven in Mark and Luke. And then we allude to it again. So you're really going to be confused when you get to the book of Acts. Why stand you gazing in heaven? What are they gazing at? Nobody's in heaven. He never ascended. So what, what are these angels talking to them about staring into heaven? You, you pick up in the book of Acts and there's just men randomly staring into heaven and, and angels showing up saying, why are you staring into heaven? Christ didn't ascend into heaven. And so it's a a major, major problem. Westcott and Hort agreed with these omissions. Therefore, when they translated the RV and and essentially, eventually, the RSV, they left them out or made them to be footnotes. So if if they wanted to, if they were dealing with more conservative people, they'd make a footnote. But if they were dealing with people they knew they could fool, they left it out completely, which is the way they would have it. Remember that Westcott and Hort believed manuscript D to be the pure manuscripts, or no, that should be B, not D. They loved B. Wait, is that what I just wrote? All these letters, you're getting me all confused. Huh? You
1: have
2: it down to B. B, yeah, I thought so. Um, so that's B. I'll have to go back and fix that and double check my source there. Um, so they compared all manuscripts in the Western text to to B, and so that was maybe that's what it is. Maybe it was um, yeah. So B is Alexandrian. So they so in the Alexandrian text they loved B. In the Western uh, line of manuscripts, D was their favorite. So I just didn't mention that anywhere. So it is it is D from the from the Western lineage or the Western. Text it's D, um, but in the Alexandrian it's B. They love B. Though the majority of the Western text manuscripts did not have uh, the additions and had the omissions, they stayed with D despite evidence to the contrary. And I remember we talked about how all, all the all the Alexandrian lines uh, they don't even agree with each other within their own family lineage. But the Antiochian line, there's almost complete total agreement in that lineage. I mean, there's minor, very, very minor separation here and there. And, but there's, a, there's enough overwhelming evidence to know where, where uh, someone might have gone astray. There, there was no corrupt intent. There might have been some accidental straying here and there. But there was enough evidence to be able to verify, yeah, they, this group messed up. I mean, they didn't get enough sleep that night, so they copied it wrong. But we have enough Evidence over here that supports what it should be, if that makes sense. I hope I didn't just confuse you. But within the Western line and the Alexandrian line, they don't agree with each other. They all say something different. So you just pick the one you want and stick with that one. <laughs> and if you don't even if you don't like that one, you can change it. You just edit it. So if that doesn't work for you, just make the one you want. All right. So the Western and the Caesarean. See. This is a fun word to try and say. A-E-S. And then that funny... I uh, don't oh know, this is the, the funny thing in English. What is that called? Anybody remember what that's called? And you have that A-E um, put together like that. Nobody is answering. That means I'm the only one that has a clue what I'm talking about. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's not it. I forget what it's called, but um, it, it, it pronounces a specific sound. Anyways, the Western text circulated through the east, through Italy, and into North Africa. That's where all the trouble is, North Africa. Its arrival in North Africa found a home in, who can guess? What country? Egypt. And what happens to manuscripts when they're in Rome or in their, when they're in Egypt? Egypt. They get hit with an eraser. (laughs) Changes get made. Uh, This fact was noted in 1899. It was documented in a book called The Biblical Text of Clement of Alexandria. Um, So, this this guy, the the, the author's name is P.M. Barnard, he put this book together about Clement of Alexandria. And he noted several verses in his writings that demonstrated they came from the Western text. So these texts take on such a strong characteristic from, from whoever did the editing that they can tell you whoever edited this was of the same mindset or it was the same person who edited this one. And so they, they start putting them together and, and creating families out of them because the, their characteristics of the omissions and the, and the uh, additions are so similar, they know that they came from the same place. They had recognizable additions or omissions that were natural to the Western text. In the 1920s and the 1930s, another text was found to be circulating in Egypt. That's this guy, the (coughs) Caesarean text. Uh, It is called the Caesarean text because it is believed that Origen used this text in Caesarea. So Origen at some point left Alexandria. So you have Origen, who is in Alexandria. And he leaves there, goes up into the promised land, Israel, and he goes to um, Caesarea. Caesarea. And when he gets there, he he took his text from Alexandria with him. Um, Origen fled from Alexandria in 231 A.D. And Origen is is believed, we're going to talk about Origen a little bit more in coming lessons, and we'll we'll get into some of the details why he had to flee. Origen is believed to have used the Alexandrian text as well. So this is where the Western text and the Alexandrian text, once they get to Egypt, they they take on a similar nature, and, and soon you can't tell the difference between the two. They end up, this is why we use Alexandria as the, as the name of the lineage as a whole. Um, later in his corrupt ministry, he used the Caesarean text. The Caesarean text has historical links back to Egypt. The Western text and the Caesarean text both have clear connections to Egypt and Rome, both of which adopted a philosophical approach to the Bible that allowed the Word of God to be edited Uh, If this person, if the person in control of reproduction of the manuscript felt the need to make changes that better suited their religious ideologies, they just did so. I don't think Jesus ascended into heaven. Just delete it. I don't think we need to know that his blood was shed for us. Just delete that. I don't think it's important that his body was given for us. Just delete it. Thus the texts were known to be corrupt, and scripture is given by God. These manuscripts were mingled with man's ideas. They are no longer scripture. All right, next. Alexandria. So that is the Western text, and I know we, I, I keep mentioning the Western family, or that, that is the Western family, along with the Alexandrian family, because their relationship is so tight. But there, there are some notable, notable differences between them, but the mentality and, and the approach to how they were edited is very similar. So next we have the Alexandrian family. Um, very early in its existence, the Alexandrian text was altered in many places. The following alterations existed in B which Westcott and Hort considered to be the most pure text. All right, now look at Luke chapter 10. And you'll see a very, very familiar idea. Same same thing, same idea. Luke 10, verses 41 and 42. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. So the Lord said, You two are, are are arguing over things that are not important. One thing is needful. Well, in the in the Alexandrian line, it says, few things are needful. Well, I mean the Lord was pretty clear. There's one thing that is needful. And he's talking about Mary sitting at his feet and enjoying fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord is trying to tell Mary, I appreciate your busyness, I appreciate your hard work, but what is really needful is for you to fellowship with me like Mary is, and I'm not taking that away from her. And so the Alexandrian text says, I don't think one thing is needful. There's probably a few things that are needful. So let's just add to that. Um, look at Luke 12. Luke 12 and verse 31. But rather seek you the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. Uh, Luke twelve thirty one. in the Alexandrian says, seek you the kingdom. Well, what kingdom? And what will happen if I seek it? (laughs) It just says, seek ye the kingdom. Now, what are the two kingdoms in the Bible? Hmm? Kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Are those the same thing? No. They are very different. And it's a major aspect of rightly dividing the word of truth to know the difference between the two. Well, what's, what's he talking about here? And so they removed kingdom of God, uh, seek ye the kingdom of God. Look at John 10. look at one more. John 10 and verse 29. Uh, John 10 verse 29. It's not as bad as what the Western text did to Luke, but this is pretty bad. "My Father, which gave them me is greater than all." And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Now, according to that passage in the traditional text, which eventually gave us our King James Bible, in that that verse, who is greater than all? My Father, right? He says, my Father is greater than all. Okay. In the Alexandrian text, it says, that which my Father hath given unto me is greater than all. Now, in the context of this chapter, What did the Father give to Jesus? Us. Christians. So whoever wrote this thought, the Father is greater than all? I don't know, I think I'm pretty great. (laughs) So I'm going to delete that. I'm going to say, what the Father gave to Jesus, me, is greater than all. That says it all. That tells you what you need to know about how these people think. They don't want to worship Jesus. They, they would go so far as to corrupt his resurrection and his ascension. And they would replace themselves in terms of greatness with the father. I think I'm the one that's great. The father would agree. I'll just change this for him. That's pretty dirty. The Alexandrian text influ- was influenced by the Sahidic Coptic version. The the Coptic is the ancient language of Egypt. In written form, the Coptic language used native Egyptian characters. But at some point, they began to use Greek capital letters. Uh, The Coptic language had many dialects, but the most important of these were the Sahidic and the Bohairic. Remember those? Those are two versions of the Word of God. We talked about them in in the first part of class. Everybody's looking at me like they remember that perfectly. <laughs> at a very early date, the Greek New Testament was translated into Sahidic. Does anybody remember when? When was the, New Te- the Greek New Testament translated into Sahidic? Second century, yeah. Uh, it can be demonstrated historically that from there, the Sahidic text influenced the Alexandrian text. Readings that are unique to the Sahidic version can be found in Papyrus 75, and that is an Alexandrian manuscript. Now, it, it, it goes on to give some examples. Um, uh, Luke 16, 19 is an, is an example. Um, now, what, what's happening in Luke sixteen nineteen? 19? Who, who remembers? What's, what's Luke 16, or that portion of Luke 16 about? Lazarus and the rich man. All right, now, now I want you to, th- we we'll think about a couple things together. Uh, Jesus said, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, will what? Right. And so when they come to him and they say that, what does he say to them? Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. All right. This is not trivial, it's, it's important. But when it comes to the, the, the knowledge, of God. All right? Does God know everything? Wrong. I know, you want to kick me out of the class and throw me down off the brow of a cliff now, don't you? All right? Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. That's one example of something God does not know. I will remember your sins no more. You better be praying, praising God. He doesn't know your sins anymore. <clears throat> don't argue with God and say, You do know everything. Okay. Bring those sins back in here. Let's deal with them. <laughs> you do what you want with this, okay? Like, I'm not mad at you if you don't believe it. You just don't be mad at me if I don't believe you, okay? Turn to Genesis 18. This is why you have to let the Bible tell you about God. You don't want to make assumptions about God. And our groups are so, are so consumed by systematic theology, which is put together by Calvinists, that they're confused about who God is in many ways. Can God do anything The God who cannot lie. Okay, that's something, according to the Bible, that God cannot do. So when you make the statement, God can do anything, can he save you outside the gospel? Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Without that power of God, you have no salvation. So God is limited in his ability to save you, without the gospel. Alright? Now, all right, look at verse 17. Look at verse sixteen. And the man rose up from thence and looked down and looked towards Sodom. So you know what's going on here. And Abraham went with them to to bring them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall shall be blessed in him. Why is God asking himself, should I hide this from Abraham? If he already knows what he's going to do. Now, this is what people do. They say, well, God knew. He he knew. Okay, well, let's read the passage and see what God says. Verse 19, For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, uh, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. And the Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, okay, someone is crying about this place, Sodom and Gomorrah. You see that? Don't be mad at me, okay, when we see this. just if you, Raise your hand if you believe the Bible.
0: <laughs>
2: We're about to find out. <laughs> the, Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now. Who's talking? God, and see whether... Now, what is he saying there? I've heard what's been said about the place. I'm going to go see if it's true. But we're not done yet. It gets even more clear. All right? So, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it. Well, if God already knows everything and he knew what everybody was going to do, why is he got to go see according to the cry. But it continues, which has come unto me, and if not, (laughs) I will know. What's he saying? Right now, I don't know. But I'm going to go find out. And then I will know. And I will deal with them accordingly. Now, who knew that was in the Bible? (laughs) Who wishes I would leave now? (laughs) Now, there's there's a rhyme and reason to all of this. right? God can know whatever God wants to know. And everything that's happening in your life and my life is being recorded in a book. And someday that book will be opened and your life and your sins will be dealt with. But you should thank God that he doesn't know what's going on in your life sin-wise now. Why? When he went and verified that the cry against Sodom and Gomorrah was true, what did he do? He rained down fire and brimstone and he destroyed the place. So if he knew what was going on in your life, what would he have to do? So he sits in heaven, separated from you, giving you time and space and everything you need to trust in Jesus Christ so that when he finally has to look at you, you're washed in the blood of the lamb and he doesn't have to open the books and deal with your life. It's a good thing that God doesn't know. And it's it's the way he set this up. Now, this is what people say. Well, if God doesn't know everything, he can't be God. Who told you that? God just told you, I'm God. I don't know what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, but I heard about it, and I'm going to go see. You can't say that. You made that up. You're making up your own God. Now, people mean well when they say that, but it's not biblical. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. I never knew you. Now, this brings us back to Lazarus. And who? What's his name? Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. So you have this rich man in hell. And it's perfectly in line with what God says in his his word. Now, what does this have to do with our lesson? (laughs) In the... In the Alexandrian text, they tell you the rich man's name. This is his name. I don't even know how Nevis, Neves, I don't even know how you pronounce it. But they added his name to the text. And uh, so this is one of the reasons they know that the Sahedic version influenced the Alexandrian manuscript is because th- this idea, um, uh, and, and then some of them say his name is this, Nineveh, not Nineveh like, like in the Bible, but Nineveh. And uh, so there, there was an old Coptic tradition surrounding this name. Um, the catechists of the Coptic church carried on this tradition and, and said that the rich man's name was Nineveh or Neve, and uh, so it was put in, the bio, it was put in, their, in their, their manuscripts. So when you find a manuscript that has these names in it for the rich man, who God said, he went to hell, I don't know him. I don't have a clue who he is. He was rich. Just put the rich man. They put his name, or what they suppose his name to be. <laughs> and so that's the kind of silliness you get and people who corrupt the Bible. And then a second explanation is that the Coptic word Nineveh means nobody in the Sahidic dialect. But again, that's not what Luke 16 says. Luke 16 says the rich man. doesn't say nobody. All right, the folly of giving the rich man a name, we just went over. uh, Matthew 7, 21 through 23, I never knew you. Thus the rich man is called the rich man. He is not given a name in the Bible because that would be inconsistent with what God said. I don't know these people. Depart from me. I'm sending you to hell, to everlasting fire. You didn't want me. And so I don't know you. You're in hell. And that's how it's, gonna, that's how it's going to be. Example number two uh, is in John eight fifty-seven. Hast thou seen Abraham? Papyrus seventy-five, as well as several other manuscripts from Alexandria, it says, "Hath Abraham seen thee?" <laughs> well, that's, okay, so which? I mean, that's a bit confusing. Who's seeing who here? According to the Bible, these men are asking Jesus, "You seen? You're like you're thirty years old. You seen Abraham?" Well, in the Alexandrian text, they're asking, "Abraham saw you." <laughs> And so they they twist it around. That's just little details that they switch up. Um, John 10, 7, I am the door of the sheep. The corrupt text says, I am the shepherd of the sheep. That's not what it says. In fact, it makes no sense in the passage because he's talking about a door. If you come in any other way than through this door, you're a thief and a robber. So why would you change it to shepherd? It makes, now, now it makes no sense. It, it doesn't fit. So the Alexandrian line of manuscripts are among the oldest extant manuscripts. Uh, they were preserved because no one used them. They are corrupt texts that are edited to suit the religious uh, uh, desires of the particular scribe. The mentality of Alexandria, of Alexandrian Western Caesarean texts, is one that believes God's word is subject to man. Now, we've got, I think we've got time we could do this. Um, we're going to talk about what has come to be known, the Alexandrian Mentality. All right, so this is it's going to be in your Bible. Let's look at um, the, the, the Alexandrian mentality was established in Scripture. Anytime our Bible mentions Egypt or Alexandria, it's not good. Something has is corrupt. It's, it's bondage. It's the, the iron furnace. It's, it's, it's always trouble. Uh, it's a picture of the world. Uh, more often than not, The ideas mentioned are negative and even related to false and incomplete doctrine. Look at Acts chapter 6. We'll try to go through these quickly and close out class with them. Acts chapter 6. And then next week we'll pick up with the Egyptian mentality. Which, as you can probably imagine, is very similar. Acts 6 verses 7 through 10. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose a certain synagogue, which was called the synagogue of the Libertines, the Cyrenians, and who? The Alexandrians. And of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing was Stephen. So here you have Alexandrians disputing with Stephen, fighting with him. Look at um, Acts eighteen, verses twenty-four through twenty-eight. And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only what? The baptism of John. What's the problem with that? It's incomplete doctrine. So here you have Apollos, who came from where? And he doesn't have the full, the full details. Now, praise the Lord, Apollos was teachable. And Apollos went on to do very well. He was mighty in the scriptures. He was an eloquent man. And, and he, he submitted himself, and he, himself to people who were willing to teach him. Um, but that's not always the case. So there you have incomplete doctrine coming from Alexandria. I'm glad she's not here tonight. She's really getting, she's really getting hit hard. Um, so what he learned in Alexandria stunted his growth. But the Bible demonstrates in several places people who are hungry for the, for the truth will stumble upon that truth and the Lord's help. Aquila, Aquila and Priscilla were able to take him and teach him the word of God more perfectly. And uh, he learned and he went on and he was, he was mighty in the scriptures. Look at Acts 27. And we'll read verses 1 through 11. And when it was determined we should, we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and certain of the prisoners... Unto one named Julius, a centurion of Augustus' bands, and entering into the ship of Adramidium, we launched, meaning to sail by the coasts of Asia. One Aristarchus and a Macedonian um, of Thessalonica being with us, and the next day we touched at Sidon. And Julius courteously entreated Paul and gave him liberty to go unto his friends to refresh himself. And when we had launched from thence, we sailed under Cyprus because the winds were contrary. Now, what's happening in Paul's life right now? What's taking place? What's Paul doing? Hmm? He's on his way to Rome. He's in prison, right? He's on his way to his death. He's going to be executed at Rome. but He's got to get to Rome. Verse 5. And when we had sailed over the sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Ly- Lycia. And there, the, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria, Alexandria sailing into it- Italy, and he put us there in. So they need to make their way to Rome so Paul can be put to death, and who helps them out? A ship from Alexandria. Interestingly, that's not the only one. Look at Acts 28. And we'll read 1 through 16 quickly. And when they were escaped, then they knew that the island was called Melita, and the barbarous people showed us no little kindness, for they kindled a fire and received us every one because, because of the present rain and because of the cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, there came a viper out of, out, out of the heat and fastened on his hand. Why did Pentecostals never want to try that? Why is it always they want to speak in tongues? How come they don't want to stick their hand down and let a, let a, a cobra or a, a mamba bite them? <laughs> if you have the sign gifts, you have them, right? Verse 4, And when the barbarians saw the venomous beast hang on his hand, they said among themselves, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he hath escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffereth not to live. And he shook off the beast into the fire and felt no harm. Howbeit they looked uh, when when he should have swollen and fallen down dead suddenly. But after they, they looked in a great while and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a God. In the same quarters were possessions of the chief man, of the island, whose name was Publius, that's another good name if anybody's interested, who received us and lodged us three days courteously. And it came to pass that the father of Publius lay sick with a fever and a bloody flux to whom Paul entered in and prayed and laid hands on him and and healed him. So then when this was done, others also which had diseases uh, in the island came and were healed. Now if you were the Romans who were going to take this man to his death, you might be rethinking that right now. <laughs> like, how is this possible? Like, we're supposed to kill this guy? Who also honored us with many honors. And when we departed, they laded us with such things as were necessary. Now, this whole time, he keeps talking about their escape and their departing. And so, so he's moving towards their leaving Miletus and continuing their journey to Rome, right? Verse 11. And after three months, we departed in a ship of... Alexandria, which had wintered in the isle, whose sign was Castor and Pollux, and landing at Syracuse, we tarried there three days, and from thence we fetched a compass and came to Regium. And after one day the south wind blew, and we came the next day to Puteoli, and so on. And so he ended up making his way to Rome, and the ship of Alexandria helped him to get there. Now, that doesn't paint a very good picture of Alexandria. That's a problem. And so anytime you meet someone from Alexandria, they have incomplete doctrine, or they're disputing with the word of God, or they're helping God's people come to their end. That's not good. That's an Alexandrian mentality. Now, what about the Egyptian mentality? I think we can do it in 15 minutes. Actually, we've got more than that. We've got 18 minutes. The Egyptian mentality appears to be worse than that of the Alexandrian mentality. This is, this is if you look at it from a biblical perspective. Egypt will forever be known as the most vivid picture of the world or bondage in God's word. The battles between God's people and Egypt started early and have been long lasting. Quickly turn to Genesis 16. Um, actually, I'll just turn to Genesis 37. I'll tell you about Genesis 16, and you can write it down in your notes if you want. Genesis 16... Uh, Is about Hagar and Ishmael. That started a problem that we still see very vividly today. That battle rages on. Uh, This mistake on Abraham's part would be the start of endless battles, not only the world and Ishmael's descendants, but also Israel and Ishmael's (coughs) descendants. The Arabs are an extension of, of this mistake. And they are absolutely wild men who are against every, everyone's hands and everyone's hands are against them. That's what God said about Ishmael. He said, every man's hand is going to be against your hand and your hand is going to be against every man's hand. And that's the... Who's not fighting with the Arabs somewhere, some way? <laughs> it's, if, unless they have dominated your country, then, then they either want to dominate it or you're going to have to fight them to stop them. And it's not because they're Arabs it's, it's the influence of Islam and their Arab background. Got, you know, what, Somebody asked me one time, so why did God bless Islam? God didn't bless Islam. God blessed Ishmael. And, and that was Abraham's fault. That was Abraham's mistake, but God blessed him and, and said, but you're going to be a wild man. And, and so Islam basically gave an ideology to the wild man, essentially, it gave a religion to the wild man. And that, that, is, that is Ishmael. So... Again, just, just for sake of time, I'll tell you the verses. Genesis 37, verses 26 through 36. Um, what happened there? Anybody, anybody know? Can anybody guess? Some of you just talked through this on the, on the, for, the, for the radio. What happened in Genesis 36? Joseph is taken out of the pit and sold to who? Ishmaelites, who took him into Egypt, Right? All right, and then Genesis 39, verse 1, Ishmaelites sold Joseph in Egypt. And then we get to Exodus 1, verses 6 through 13. Egypt made Israel serve with what? Rigor. They're enslaved in Egypt, and Egypt is just, just pounding them at this point. You know, Joseph, Joseph was elevated to that position of, of power and prestige. But then a new Pharaoh came who knew not Joseph. And he said, who are all these people living in our country, (laughs) breeding, having more babies? we got to do something about this. And he did. He made them to serve with with rigor. He put them in severe bondage. Egypt has reversed Joseph's prestige. We just talked about that. Then by the time you get to Leviticus 18, look look at that. Let's turn to Leviticus 18. Leviticus... 18 Verses one through five. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, I am the Lord your God. After the doings of the land of Egypt, wherein ye dwelt, shall ye shall ye not do. And after the doings of the land of Canaan, whether I bring you, shall ye not do. Neither shall you walk in their ordinances, you shall do my judgments. And keep mine ordinances to walk therein. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes. And so the Lord puts a clear difference between Israel and Egypt and Israel and the Canaanites. And he says, don't you do what they do. Don't walk after them. You're supposed to do what I say. Don't do it. Don't do what they do. Stay away from that. Um, Leviticus 22 verses 31 and 33 um, the wording here is interesting. The Lord often notes why He brought Israel out of Egypt. And in this case, He says, It was so that I could be your God. I had to take you out of Egypt so that I could be your God. That, that's, that's, that's the way the wording is. It's, it's very, very in- interesting. And it, uh, it, it indicates that when you live in the world, when you live in bondage, when you live in sin, then it's difficult for the Lord to be your God. So come out. Come ye out from among them. We love that verse, but do you do it? Uh, You place yourself in a position that makes a relationship with God difficult or impossible when you decide to fellowship with the unfruitful darkness of this world. Leviticus 26 verses 11 through 13. He said, I made you to be upright. And in order for Israel to break the yoke of bondage and walk upright, the Lord had to bring them out of Egypt. I mean, the the wording, let's look at that one real quick, because the wording is just beautiful. Uh, Leviticus 26, the the way God says it, and then if you think about it in light of what we're talking about, verses 11 and 13 through 13, uh, 25, 26, 11 through 13. And I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. That'd be a good thing. You don't want God to abhor you. (laughs) Um, Verse 12, And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and ye shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt, that ye should not be their bondmen. And I have broken the bands of your yoke, and made you go, what? Upright. (laughs) I broke the bondage off of you so you can walk upright. How does God want us to live? He wants us to be upright. Now, I mean, that, that's, it just gives you a beautiful picture of, of this relationship and, 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 um, and the reality of, of Egypt, the realities of Egypt. The Lord didn't just want them out of Egypt. He wanted them stripped of their Egyptian ideals and mentalities. The Lord doesn't just want you to be saved. G- getting saved is the starting point. What do you become when you get saved? The day you get saved, you're a newborn babe. And too many people are just happy being a little baby. You have people in church who have been there 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and they never grew up spiritually. And it shows because the moment they get confronted with something or something happens, they get mad, they get angry, and they leave. Why? Because they're spiritual babies. They never grew up. They have no maturity. Uh, Israel went into Egypt as slaves through Joseph's captivity. After some time, Joseph won the prestige of the king and became the second in command of all of of Egypt. He was the second command of a sinking ship. (laughs) Now, it helped them out, uh, but this is the desire of many of our brethren. They are influenced by the scholarship that extends from Alexandria, Egypt. They eagerly adopt Egypt's scholarly doctrine in the hopes that it will win them a place of prestige in the house of bondage. Why do you want to be a big man in the house of bondage? Why not come out of the house of bondage and serve God freely? (laughs) Which is what he would prefer. But Joseph's prestige turned into bondage all over again. That's what they do. They, they offer you the bishop prick. Come on, Erasmus. You know the money you can make as a bishop? Mm-hmm. You're not going to get me caught up in this vicious cycle of bondage. <laughs> and I've got to abandon God. I've got to abandon my convictions. I've got to abandon the word of God. I've got to abandon my my principles in order to please you. And you're just going to throw me right back into bondage as soon as you can. And that's what they did. That's what they did to Joseph and to Israel. Um, But Joseph, it turned back into into bondage. In fact, it happened in Potiphar's house, and it happened again when he was the second in command. He earns a place of honor in a dishonorable society. Then that place of honor is converted right back into bondage. I just want the world to love me. (laughs) Why? They don't care about you. They're going to eat you up and spit you out as soon as they no longer care about you. As 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 as, As soon as you can't please them anymore, They're going to throw you away like they throw everybody away. And that's not what God does. Israel was then forced to serve Egypt with rigor. Many of the Egyptians bought into Egyptian, many of the that probably should say Israelites bought into Egyptian thinking, religion and morality. Their hope was to gain the prestige of intellectuals and scholars. But in the end, they find themselves back in bondage. Christians in our day follow this same pattern influenced by Alexandria and Egypt. Then they are sent out to pastor churches and to be missionaries so they can teach you to be in bondage just like them. Now, for you sitting in this room and people who have followed this, there's no excuse for you anymore. You should not end up in bondage to this idea that you don't have the Word of God. You need the Greek. You need the Hebrew. You're, you're, you're in, the, in the 1600s, God gave us a perfect Bible in English. And since the 1600s, people in the, in the Alexandrian mentality have been trying to go back to, the, to before the 1600s when we didn't have a Bible. Does that make any sense? No, it makes no sense at all. And it's unnecessary. Um, let's look at these few... Um, characteristics of Egypt. Look at Deuteronomy 6, verses 12 through 13. Then beware, lest thou forget the Lord which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from where? The house of bondage. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve him and shalt swear by his name. He said, I brought you out of Egypt which is the house of bondage why do you want to go back i gave you a bible and the truth shall make you free why do you want to go back it's it's just a vicious circle of bondage look at Deuteronomy 8 in verse 14 then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Look at, um, look at Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 20. But the Lord hath taken you and brought you forth out of the iron furnace, Even out of where? Egypt. To be unto him a people of inheritance as ye are this day. So here are your choices Do I want to be a people of inheritance or do I want to be in an iron furnace? I mean, I can inherit God or I can hang out in an iron furnace. The choice seems pretty simple to me. Look at Acts 21. Uh, turn to Revelation 11. I'll tell you Acts 21. Acts 21, 38. Uh, anybody remember what happened there? Um, that's when they're talking about, they're talking to Paul and they're like, Aren't you that, mur- that Egyptian that took those people out and murdered them in the wilderness? <laughs> Paul's like, No, that's not me. What are you talking about? No. So they immediately thought they connected the Egyptian with a murderer in Acts 28, 31. Revelation 11, verse 8. Let's see how God uses uses this idea here. Verse 8. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was what? Crucified. Crucified. Now, when I read the Alexandrian text, what it seems like to me is they're trying to remove evidence of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. They're trying to remove evidence of the ascension of Jesus Christ. My body, which is given for you, my blood, which is shed for you, delete it, remove it. Now, without the blood and the body of Jesus Christ, if Christ be not risen, you are yet in your sins. Why would you leave perfection and go back to bondage? Why would you leave the truth which will set you free and you will be free indeed according to Jesus Christ or go back to bondage? That's the mentality. that's, That's the thinking. You don't have God's word, so you need me. You need to be subject to me because I've made God's word subject to me also. And as long as I have a Greek dictionary and I can change what God said, you need me to tell you what God really meant to have there. It's bondage. It does nothing to help you.
0: We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.pleniusredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.